0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, June 8th, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. Businesses love telling us about the good they're doing when we buy their products, and they love to tell us because it helps the bottom line. But is corporate social responsibility really all that responsible? Kimberly Josephson is a professor of business at Lebanon Valley College. Her view is that businesses should avoid the temptation to stray from the one true bottom line, which is profit. I was speaking recently with Sam Staley of Florida State University about social entrepreneurship. These are for-profit organizations that put a portion or a large chunk of their revenues into achieving some social good. We talked about Tom's Shoes as an example of how not to do this, in part because of the the problems that Tom's Shoes unwittingly created for local markets when they airdropped all these shoes into poor communities but in general it's the idea that there are there can be multiple stakeholders shareholders are obviously first and foremost but there are other groups to consider when you are making decisions so that you can maximize impact for social good and you disagree with this, and we talked about this a little bit when we spoke in Florida last month. Tell me, what what is the issue? What is the rose-colored glasses uh, that we're wearing when, when people talk about social entrepreneurship and trying to use a business enterprise to engage in explicit social good?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I I, I feel... I don't want to turn people off of the idea of wanting to do good and using uh, business to do so, but I also think we need to be careful about it. Right? If we think about how business has um, really benefited society in many ways, just in serving as a business and and once again as an ethical, um, you know, organization, so not one that exploits or takes advantage or abuses or right, just a, a good solid business um, that is. A benefit in and of itself. And I see these social entrepreneurship programs kind of popping up at different academic institutions. And I and I know that social entrepreneurship is a real kind of a you know hot buzz term and the stakeholder model, right? So thinking outside of just my shareholders, thinking about um, my impact on not only my employees and my customers, but also society at large. Um, an organization might spread itself too thin. Um, in terms of trying to appease every stakeholder, because uh, really it, it's it's endless, right? In terms of who your stakeholders are, if you really want to get into it that way. Um, and the shareholders, right? Most of them, especially, oh my goodness, angel investors for startup companies, right? They're taking a risk, a gamble, and um, they're giving that organization their money um, to use and leverage. And that's their property. For these social organizations, Uh, My concern is also it it creates a centralization of power. Um, People tend to be charitable. Uh, People tend to want to give. um, And in terms of the organization, they don't need to take it upon themselves. It could be something that give it back to the shareholders, give it back to the employees, and allow them to pursue the charitable initiatives of their choice within their local communities. And as we saw with Tom Shoes and as we see with other programs, um, In trying to solve a problem, sometimes they create more. Um, And it also creates a a dependency-based relationship because you are focusing on um, a social cause. And so you have to sell that issue as well. And if another social cause comes about, um, so a classic example is the idea of, you know, we want to help development in third world countries, but we have the buy local phenomenon, right? Um, So do we want to source our produce or do we want to buy from the local farmer's market? So there's always conflicting social issues. And for an organization um, to really not get caught in the weeds of that and, and really to stick to what the core of an organization is about. There's actually uh, what's known as the CSR uh, pyramid by uh, Carol, Um, and it's uh, made up of, you know, our our economic responsibility and then our legal responsibility. And then we can think in terms of our ethical. So, you know, there are some ethics that are uh, we want to adhere to that go above and beyond legal. And then in terms of philanthropic, really just giving back to the local community in which you reside, because it's kind of the idea of this is where you are housed, you know, give back. And and I'm all for that. But in terms of taking on these big, you know, transnational issues, we've seen some companies get into some hot water pursuing them and then also doing it poorly because what they do do well is their business, not uh, social, you know, tackling the big social problems of the world.
0: I have several examples in mind. Uh, sure. One is a pizza place in, I believe, Arlington or Falls Church, Virginia, that I used to go to, and their whole thing—the pizza place was all about dogs and finding homes for dogs, and that was their charitable enterprise. The pizza was pretty good too, and uh, I thought, well, I, I go here. This is a, this is a place I like to eat anyway. I'm doing this, there's this other thing, other mission that that this group has. That's fine. I like dogs. Uh, and then I think about when I was a kid and played baseball, and the local car dealership or the local furniture store would buy us uniforms that had their like logo or advertising on it. And so perhaps what we're just talking about is a difference in uh, marketing. Correct. and positioning yeah. yourself as a business because these places were trying to be local community benefactors but they were also overwhelmingly focused on their local business so if if there's there's no large difference between say the whole foods stakeholder model of or is there is there a big difference between that and the the whole foods sort of stakeholder model that, uh, John Mackey pioneered.
1: Well, and, and actually if, uh, we think about what Milton Friedman would say about this is that, Hey, this is window dressing, right? If it's going to generate more sales, uh, have at it type of thing. Once again, I like the idea of kind of sticking with local, uh, philanthropic, uh, donations or local initiatives. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, and also you have to have a superior product. So, if you know that that pizza place, if their pizza wasn't very good, it didn't matter how nice they were to dogs. You weren't going to, you weren't going to be there. So, if this is a way for them to differentiate themselves, um, and and that's that's also my other kind of concern is that um, ethical labels and you know social marketing has become a very lucrative realm. Um, because it does appeal to the emotions of consumers and we are willing to pay more for something that we don't even fully understand why? Um, and do we really want organizations to be serving as social guardians, uh, telling us what we should care about, um, You know, making us feel obligated towards certain, once again, causes or, or things like that? So should my support uh, over one cause trump another, right? We So it kind of... My concern is just it it gets complicated and it's also giving organizations actually a bit more power. Um, but that being said, we are the cause of it. Um, organizations are listening to the data, right? So they track what's going on in the market and what people are interested in. And this actually dates back all the way to like the 1970s and the 1980s, where we had like, you know, um, the movement for changing the world, the new international economic order of foreign aid, and we have to play a bigger role and, um, you know, obviously bono you know got us all excited about it. and so is the idea of okay we need to do more and especially in advanced markets we feel almost obligated um like we're doing so well we need you know if i'm going to buy something at least i should do something you know have some power behind that purchase but that also so once again the companies listen to this right they're tracking data and they're seeing that people they're buying into this social marketing. Um, but this is also empowering the organizations to, to then kind of direct our view of these social causes, of these issues. Um, there, there's a study that was done that looked at um, celebrity endorsements of charitable giving and how um, it actually. Drew more attention to the celebrity, <laughs> not so much to the charity, because if you have a celebrity who makes um, a good amount of money backing a charity, it almost negates, well, why do I have to open up my pocketbook, right? They make a ton of money. Um, and so, same thing, there was uh, a situation where Susan G. Komen Foundation, Breast Cancer Awareness, um, partnered up with uh, KFC and did, uh, you know, buckets of chicken for a cause type of thing. And they were pink buckets. And the idea was with every you know fried chicken bucket that was purchased, some money went towards cancer research, which actually made a lot of money for cancer research, which was great. But it also created a disconnect and KFC got some backlash because it was like, well, fried chicken um, doesn't really go with the idea of being healthy. And it seemed like a disconnect. And it also seemed like you know they were just leveraging that. Concerned to really make a name for themselves.
0: Uh, so I guess I'm, I'm trying to get down to the, the precise complaint here. Uh, businesses that don't do well as business doesn't matter what their charitable aims are. Right. Uh, and businesses that do well at business and have a charitable aim but don't do well at that charitable aim or are in some cases actively destructive. Uh, whether or not they are aware of it, or their customers aware of it, they're placing themselves at risk of losing the business of people who were buying a psychic good. That is, I was I'm purchasing the product. The product is good, uh, but I'm also purchasing it. You know, maybe this is making the difference between whether I buy this or that. If you are engaged in a charitable aim, uh, I I want that extra benefit as well. I want to feel good about my purchase. I want to feel. Ethically, that this is the right thing for me to be engaged in. What's wrong with that at the core?
1: Well, we see a lot of competition right now in social labels. Um, Actually, if you look at your shampoo bottle, it is covered in labels usually in terms of just all the certifications and what they're selling and what they're saying that they're about. Um, My concern, once again, actually kind of goes back to the consumer in that we have to um, realize. pressure that we're putting on organizations to make these ethical claims because they're just responding right they're seeing that okay my competitor has this certification stamp i should have it as well and so on and so forth but some of these certification stamps are doing actually not that you know that they're not benefiting um as they should be and also um I think it's damaging actually to true entrepreneurs. Um, As I see at other academic institutions that are promoting social entrepreneurship or programs that do that, um, it, it almost places a negative view on making a profit for profit's sake, right? And profit is what is the magic that, that allows you to scale, that allows you to invest. And actually most businesses aren't making a ton of money in terms of their profit margins. It's not as high as people would think. It's usually, I mean, if you're profiting at, 10%, that's actually amazing, right? And for small firms who maybe can't afford to pay the certification fees for these social labels or partake in charitable donations because they are just making it, uh, you know, breaking even or or they need that profit for other means, um, it's almost simultaneously placing these organizations that aren't partaking in social initiatives in kind of a negative light. Whereas in reality, business in and of itself is a social initiative, right? It pays taxes, it provides employment it reinvests, right? Um, and so I think too much of a focus on we have to do good with our business uh, makes it sound like business is evil when it doesn't. And it, And really the beauty of business is what it does.
0: Before we started recording, we talked about coffee and fair sure. trade certified. Yeah. And that is something that I have used. And I believe I talked about this with Sam Staley as well, which is I tend to view fair trade coffee as, or, or the fair trade certified, whatever label you want to put on it. I tend to view that as a pretty good proxy for better coffee. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, whether or not, whatever the, whatever the, whatever's wrapped up in the business practice of, Creating fair trade as a label, it's not that important to me. Certainly, <laughs> certainly the quality of the coffee is more important to me, but this label I think tends to confer better quality.
1: Right. Well, and and that shows the oddity of social marketing, right? Is that you don't even and and most people associate fair trade with coffee. That's a flagship commodity item. Um, but most people don't understand what that even means, what that entails. There are some certifiers within the fair trade sector who actually have been, um, it's been found that, you know, fair wages haven't always been applied, um, that there has been corruption in the system that now I want to be clear that I'm not saying, you know, stop drinking your fair trade coffee, or, you know, this is a bad approach. Um, I just, once again, I want to place the burden on consumers to start thinking why these things appeal to us. And in regards to fair trade, it actually originated with the sale of handicrafts, right? Which really demonstrated the art and culture of third world countries. Um, it was really Serve. done through church activist groups, yep, served 10,000 villages, right? Yes. I actually, I'm a, I'm a proponent for that. I think that's great because it allows for skill development. Um, it was supplemental income that was, uh, primarily, primarily derived from, um, women in the household who had no other means. Um, and so this was seen, I think, as a, you know, a beneficial way to engage. Um, It shifted to commodity items, particularly when coffee took off. And that was because Starbucks um, was kind of one of the first movers with adopting fair trade coffee, which really amounted to a lot in terms of the sourcing of fair trade. And actually, uh, Starbucks has since created its own certification label and has backed away um, from the fair trade certifiers because they realized, hey, we can do this. We don't have to pay a certification scheme for this. Um, And so... Uh, We actually see a competition in the fair trade sector in that you have a variety of certification schemes who are all vying for your attention. Um, Some of them still focus on handicrafts, but handicrafts are really only about 20%, 25% at best of the fair trade market. It's now all on commodity items. And this is a bit of a concern to me in that um, the commodity items, they don't add any additional benefit. Um, A fair trade banana is still a banana. Right, so for the consumer, the appeal is really um, that social element and feeling, you know, like you should be giving. Um, in terms of agricultural goods, though, no country has ever grown rich focusing on, you know, agriculture on their agrarian niche. Um, it, it it doesn't really promote higher order goods or skill development, and also the certification itself is a little, in some ways, a little tricky because you're supporting small farms. Um, And poor producers and what happens if that certification leads to them actually uh, wanting to expand and grow their farm, Um, it creates almost a marketing dilemma, because here you are, you know, paying for this coffee, because it's supporting a small, you know, farm. But what if they profit and want to expand? They actually kind of can't because then they might lose certification in some cases. Now, some of these different certifiers have adjusted their model to include plantations. Um, actually, Fairtrade USA um, has, uh, you know, a kind of a history of kind of um, going against some of the major certifiers certifiers like World Fair Trade Organization, in that they were one of the first to start certifying plantations. Um, whereas, you know, the World Fair Trade Organization and Flow really focused on, no, we want to really adhere to uh, small producers. Um, but as they expand too, they're coming up, coming uh, to terms with their own uh, issues regarding expansion and trying to fulfill sales and things of that sort. So with the commodity items, I don't really see the benefit of creating a certification system that sometimes limits producers, also imposes restrictions, and then also require audits, like for, you know, verifying that the farm is organic, whereas the farm's organic by default. It's in the third world, right? Um, So they don't have access to the same pesticides and, and things that we have here. And so it kind of works on a aid via trade model, right? And so that creates almost this subsidized process. And, um, you know, anyone who has read uh, Dead Aid by Dambisa Moyo um, knows that, hey, you know, what, and even, I mean, Hernando de Soto, right, property rights, what's most important, allow people to have ownership of their property, the right to benefit from it, safeguard that, allow them flexibility. Um, When you impose a certification system that now has them adhere to certain requirements that now have to be audited and fees have to be paid, and now you have this Intermediary, um, it can create some some complications, and also maybe even um, prevent uh, expansion or negate the desire to expand uh, because of that subsidized process.
0: And because it's a, it's by definition, a lot of fair trade certifications require that you be a small farm.
1: Correct. Correct. Yes. Yeah. And once again, it, you know, so I'll drink my uh, fair trade coffee and and feel like maybe I, I'm doing something good. But once again, not all the certification systems follow the same standards, um, even in terms of chocolate. Uh, that's another kind of, uh, you know, uh, fair trade uh, chocolate bars are kind of very uh, common in uh, the UK market um, and well known. But sometimes only one ingredient is certified as fair trade. But so even if only 10% of that chocolate bar has fair trade, sometimes it has the stamp and you think it is, um, you know, the whole candy bar, whereas really it's just one ingredient. Um, And so, you know, these labeling systems, they're really just used to um, promote sales. uh, And also in terms of certifications, there might be some issues there because like any regulation, right, it's a self-certification or a certification system. It is a form of imposed regulation. now. once again, I want to be clear that I'm, you know, don't want to demonize these fair trade organizations because I believe their heart is in the right place. And they, and it started as a grassroots initiative, right? It was in, it was taken on by activists who really wanted to see change. Um, but now that it's progressed into kind of this, you know, marketing model, uh, I think, and especially in, in terms of the competition between fair trade organizations, you have various certifiers with various standards and different uh, different elements, uh, part of it. Um, I think that there needs to be a hard look at, okay, what does this really mean? Is it really working? Is this the best approach? Um, I personally am, am not the biggest fan of a, an aid through trade approach. Um, and and also too, in, in, in regards to an aid through trade approach, it, it promotes the idea of an export oriented strategy where a lot of these uh, countries where it's being sourced from they really need to focus on market diversification within their region and even within you know their local community uh, versus focusing on um, export markets that now they are dependent on.
0: Kimberly Josephson is a professor of business at Lebanon Valley College. We spoke last month. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.